And, uh, uh, you know, I want you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 7 in a minute, but uh, uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to begin to get into Romans chapter 8 today. And, uh, uh, but at the same time, I kind of want you just to be able to sit back and relax. This is not going to be one of these studies where, well, maybe it will be, I don't know, but uh, it's probably one you want to pick up the tape and go back through and put some things together, you know. And you hear me say it many times, and I believe this, and you know what I believe about the Word of God. I believe all the Bible is the Word of God. I don't think that there's one period, one question mark, one explanation mark. I don't believe there's anything uh, that uh, is the, in the Bible that isn't, uh, isn't the Word of God, and I believe it's absolutely, totally, and completely all-important found in the Word of God. But there are certain chapters in the Bible that stand out uh, as great chapters. And you, you're going to study the Bible and you're going to get into the Bible at any great degree. You're going to see that as true. And it's simply because uh, that there's so much information in those particular chapters. You take places like Genesis chapter 3. That's a, that's a loaded chapter. Genesis chapter 4 is another loaded chapter. Uh, you saw Thursday night from uh, when, we, when Joe Christensen asked the question about, uh, uh, well, he didn't ask the question, I went there, but then he asked about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You got, a, you got an idea what a loaded chapter that is. Incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a great loaded chapter. Isaiah 14. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But in the book of Romans, without a doubt, and I, and I believe this is, 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 is so true, the greatest chapter in Romans chapter uh, in the book of Romans is Romans chapter eight, and it, it as far as your life and my life and what we're going to talk about today, and I know there's many aspects to our Christian life, but as far as you and I and our victory in Christ Jesus and what God has done for this, it may well be the greatest verse, our greatest chapter in all the Bible, as as for you and me as a Christian, for in it contains a number of great concepts and great truths that a child of God that you've got to have if you're going to have. Uh, what we've been talking about here uh, as the victorious Christian life. And let's face it, the book of Romans, as we talked about, even though it is the handbook of Christian doctrine, and even though it, it does explain uh, for you and for me where Christ is at and all that He's accomplishing in the New Testament, without a doubt, it is the book, and you should know this by now because of our times in the book of Romans, it is the book, without a doubt, that is the foundation if you're ever going to have in your life uh, the victorious Christian life, a consistency in your life that is going to carry you through. And uh, Romans chapter 8 is the summation of all the great doctrines that we have come through uh, in this doctrinal section. And remember I told you that the doctrinal section was chapter 5, 6, 7, and, and 8. The next section we're going to get into will be the prophetic section, and that's 9, 10, and 11, and then we'll get into the practical section, which is the rest of the book. I guess, and we know this because we have talked about this off and on, on Thursday night and even on, and many times on Sunday morning, the doctrine of eternal security. The fact that once you get saved, you're eternally secure in Christ Jesus. That is a doctrine today that many, many Christians have a tough time with. It's a doctrine today that, uh, uh, in a teaching today, that uh, many of God's people uh, just struggle with. There's, there's, there's denominations out there that, that actually take a stand, and they build their whole premise on the fact that if you were saved, that there is, you can do things in your life and uh, commit things in your life that God will take that salvation back. And it's one of the most messed up issues in all of Bible Christianity today. 
And, uh, and I, I hope now that you begin to see well, what we've looked at in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, that the key, the absolute key to you understanding the doctrine of eternal security is simply understanding how God saved you in the first place. I don't know how any man or any woman could look anybody in the face who understood the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and then with a straight face tell them that you could lose your salvation. The key to understanding that you can never lose the gift of salvation that God has imputed to you, and there's really the word, that how you could never lose the salvation that God imputed to you is not in running around the Bible and finding verses that prove that, though there's many verses that, that will do that. But that's not how you do it. No. You thoroughly understand <coughs> what transpired in your body, in your soul, and in your spirit the day you got saved. When you understand what Romans chapter 5, 6, 7 is talking about and get a thorough grasp on it of what transpired in your physical body within your spiritual soul the day you got saved, uh, you'll never have a problem with understanding the, uh, the doctrine of eternal security. It isn't based on finding four or five pet verses. It's really based on understanding how you got saved in the first place. And once you understand how God saved you, it is ludicrous to think that you can lose what God has given you. But it's, and I guarantee you, uh, you the average person that talks about uh, losing your salvation, you throw an open Bible in front of them and ask them to teach you and show you Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8, and they'll look like you like you're a tree for owls. They'll never, never be able to get to it because they don't understand what happened. And it's no wonder now that because of that, some of the greatest verses and the greatest concepts of your eternal security is found in Romans chapter 8. But most of all, and this is the thing I want you to remember, Romans chapter 8 is the great chapter on our deliverance from the body of this flesh. You remember that Romans chapter 5, it compared Adam's death to Christ's death on the cross. You remember that Romans chapter 6 dealt with Christ's death as it related to the spiritual death of you and I as a Christian. And when we got out of Romans chapter 7, we found that it shows the relationship of the law to the spiritual death that you and I have in Christ Jesus that once we got saved. And now we come to Romans chapter 8, which deals with the spiritual death of the Christian in relationship to future events. In other words, the redemption of your body. Now I'm going to make a very bold statement here, and I, I don't really normally <coughs> like to say things like this, because uh, so you're going to have to listen very carefully because most people only listen halfway, and then they'll, they just hear this, or they take it and they misquote you and all of that. And, but, uh, so you want to listen very carefully. But I think that the, uh, the extremeness of this statement makes my point. And uh, I, I want you to, uh, in light of where we're at in Romans chapter 8, I want you to be able to see this thing how it works. So I'm going to go ahead and say this. And I would probably wouldn't say this uh, in a crowd of people that I didn't know or that I had somewhat uh, influence in their life so I could you know, if somebody isn't listening, but this is a very bold statement, and it's a statement that you've got to listen to. But here's what it is. Right now as we sit here, and this is in light of what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 8. Sitting here this morning, if you're saved, truth of the matter is, theologically, as far as the, the, the details of it is concerned, as far as the, is the you know, is the, uh, 
the aspect of it as far as understanding the workings of it. You and I, (coughs) now listen to me, you're only half saved. If you're saved this morning, you're only half saved. Now, you see how dangerous that statement is to say? It puts some of you Christians, young Christians, if you weren't here, it puts you into a panic. I mean, somebody go out there and say, Bob says you're only half saved. Well, that's only half of what Bob said when he said you're only half saved. (laughs) What I mean by this, if you're saved this morning, (coughs) your soul is saved, your body is not. See, that's what I'm saying. Now, don't get in a panic. There's nothing you can do right now to save your body. Nothing you can do that can save anything that has to do with your flesh. Because we know from the Bible, again in Romans chapter 6 and 7, that in your flesh dwelleth no good thing. That's the seed of all the problems that you and I have. When you got saved, you should understand this now, what did God do? He came down and He separated your soul from your flesh. Your soul is now saved, your flesh now is not. But the problem is this, ladies and gentlemen. If you and I are going to go, have to go to heaven, we've got to get a new body. See? Because the body you got, flesh and blood, the body I got, flesh and blood, it's not going to work for me. So we've got to get a new one. So when I make the statement that if you're sitting here this morning and you're saved, you're only half saved, I mean in the sense that your body has not been redeemed yet. Now, your salvation is as good as it's ever going to get. When I say you're half saved, I don't mean there's any danger you won't be all saved. You know the word predestination is a word that people use completely out of context today. And we try to take the word predestination and we try to make that in the sense that that God in the distant past looked down through uh, eternity and chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And that teaching, because again, nobody knows the Bible today, is becoming very prevalent again in, in, in Baptist churches. I have two or three, uh, four or five friends of mine that I count as pretty dear friends. And, uh, and they, uh, they, uh, they, they, they are caught up in the concept of predestination. And uh, I, I say they're really good friends, but I, I wouldn't trust them any farther in teaching the Bible than I could throw a, a, you know, a minivan. I mean, I just it, it separate the two. But the word predestination in the Bible, as the Bible defines it, never had anything to do with your salvation. The Bible says, and we're going to get into this in Romans chapter 8 because I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with the air. There's so many things in Romans chapter 8 that we're going to understand better when we get done. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, For whom he did foreknow, them did he also predestinate. Now the, 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 the Calvinist or the predestination person, they take that verse and want to put in there that, that God predestined us to be saved. But that's not what the verse says. It says, For whom he did foreknow, them did he also be predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, <clears throat> when I got saved, when I got saved, my body was not conformed to the image of his Son. My soul was. But my body is not yet conformed to that. And Romans chapter 8, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> is the great chapter that deals with the redemption of your body, not your soul. So when you understand Romans chapter 8, you understand that even though, as I used the play on words a few moments ago, if you're saved here this morning, you're only half saved, the Bible says that that may be true. 
Your soul is saved, your body is not. But as we stand here right now, in God's mind, you and I, we are predestined because we are saved to get the body like Christ had. See? That's predestination in the Bible. And uh, that's just, so when you understand what I'm saying here, you realize that technically speaking, your soul is saved, but your body is not. And that's why Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in many ways for you and for me because it, it, un, it helps us understand how that the soul was saved the day you got saved and asked Christ to save you. God separated it, but now Romans chapter 6, 7 have told you and me that we're not, this is the key phrase, we're not stuck to a corpse anymore, but we're now stuck with a corpse. Ah, Romans chapter 8 is the deliverance from that. Romans chapter 8 is the day we put off this old godless flesh and put on the glory light of God's glory in a glorified body that is just going to be incredible. You think the rhinestone cowboy looked good. Now today, and what i got to do is this. We've got to get a context, so I, when we get into Romans chapter 8, that you have some kind of understanding of how the thing works. And what we want to do is I, I want to I get this thing so I can teach you some great truths in Romans chapter 8, but there's some things that I want to make sure you understand because, one, I'm not in a hurry of just <coughs> dissimulating a lot of information if you don't understand how to deal with it. Now, when you look at your Bible, the one you got in your hands, now that looks like a complicated book, doesn't it? You know there's 31,175 verses in a King James Bible. There's 1,189 chapters in that Bible that you have if you've got a King James Bible. And I'll be the first to tell you that <coughs> when, you, when you look at the Bible as of the book, it's a very intimidating book. And the reason why I believe so many people start to read the Bible, but then in the process of reading it, give it up and say it's overwhelming, I can't understand it, <coughs> because I get into it <coughs> and I'm reading it, but I really don't understand exactly what I'm dealing with here, and it just gets overwhelming to you. Now, you know here in this church that we, we find a way around that. We look at the Bible not as an intimidating book, but we look at the Bible like this. Now, certainly the Bible is a complicated book, but I've got to ask myself the question. I'm not a very complicated person. How in the world could God write such an extenuating book that appears to be so complicated. And if, if you listen to the most of the preachers and you listen to the most of the scholars in the world today, they're going to tell you that basically you and I will never really figure it out, but they already have, so if you just kind of hang on their coattails, they'll really tell you what it means. My take on it is this. If you're in this church five, ten years and you really apply yourself and you don't know that Bible better than I do, there's something wrong with you. Now, there won't be anything wrong with me. You know why? Because I'm going to make sure I give you all the keys that you can know it better than me. So it ain't going to be a mess up on my end. It's going to be a mess up on your end. But I'm telling you, the Bible's not a hard book. It looks complicated, but I found in my own life, when I had to study it and learn it, that what God did with a very complicated book is he broke this book down in, oh, I don't know, 14 main events. 
if I were you, and I'm going to help you with this over this next year, but if I were you, and I really wanted to learn the Bible, I'd start taking the Bible section by section by section by section. That's basically what we're doing for those of you that are involved in the Institute. But you stop and think about your Bible. That very complicated book right there you got in your hand, you got laying on your seat, that very complicated book that looks so intimidating basically breaks down around 14 events. And I put this chart up. This is the chart that we got back here, but I knew we couldn't see it back here. And I put this chart up here yesterday. Uh, and yes, I know, I know, I know. I've already been told a thousand times that it's crooked. Uh, I already told that it's not straight. And I, people wanted to change it. And I said, no, not only is it a great op- optic lesson of what I want to teach in the Bible, but it tells and reminds us that we're crooked and we're not always straight. So I, I thought I'd just leave it the way that it is. And yes, it is on an angle and it is going upward. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's very prophetic too because life is an uphill journey. I just love when I get things like that. But anyway, <laughs> look at this chart. Now, that chart represents the whole Bible. And I... When, I, when, I, when we got our church, I told you, I don't care, I didn't care what kind of color it was, didn't care what kind of chairs. We could all sit on the floor, cross-legged Indian style, be all right with me. There's only one thing I wanted. Only one thing I asked for. Only one thing I want. I don't have an office here. I don't want an office here. I mean, I'm not even sure the bathrooms work. I don't care. I, I, I only want one thing. I wanted that chart on that wall. Because that chart on that wall, you can look up here now. That chart right here, which is over there, that chart on the wall right here represents everything you've got to learn about the Bible. Everything. That chart is the Bible from Genesis to Revolution. Revelation. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's going to be a revolution, but it'll be when he comes back. But it, it's about, it's from Genesis to Revelation. And that represents everything about your Bible. And yet, if you look on that chart, you'll find that if I'm going to teach you this chart and teach you the Bible, and I, I suggest that, uh, you know, what we have, we have ones that are, that are much smaller than that, and they're black and white, and we passed them out many, many times, and I always try to keep two or three in my briefcase. If you want to learn the Bible, I suggest that, that you have to start with a structure and a framework, and I suggest that you get something like that. Now, many of you have bought those, and by the way, they normally sell for $50. Since I got holes punched in this one, this will be on sale for $40 today, since it's used now. But anyway... But if I sign it, then it goes up another $100, so you can decide however you want to do it. But you ever stop and think about your Bible? 14 events. 14 events. You got creation right there, okay? Right here, creation. That'd be right here. Got creation. Then the next event you got, when you come down through there and you look at it, you got Adam and Eve. See them on the thing right there in that third circle? Adam and Eve. Then the next major <coughs> event you got is Noah in the flood. Right there, see? That blue thing covered with water. No in the flood. That's the, that's the third one you got. Then when you come up through the fourth one, the fourth one is not quite as, not quite as easy to see, but it's right here. It's the Tower of Babel right there. See? Tower of Babel. That's an event you want to be able to understand. Then the next one you've got is the Exodus of Israel. And that'll bring you up right there. And that's, that's not too easy to see, but it's, it's right there where it says uh, the Lamb applied there. And you got the Exodus of Israel. Then the next thing you want to look at and next event you want to understand is the establishment of the nation of Israel as God's kingdom. That's right on the chart. Then the next thing you want to, that'll be there where it says David, 1000 B.C. Then the next thing you want to look at and get down is the captivity. That'll be in 606 B.C. Then the next thing you want to get on there and it's marked by the three crosses and yes, that'll be the crucifixion. 
The next thing you want to get, and this is the largest section of our chart, <coughs> will be the ch- history of the church, or church history, the church age, right here. Run from there to there. Then the next thing you want to get down, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is the rapture, see? You want to get the rapture down. And then you want to get the tribulation down. Then you want to get the second coming down. Then you want to get the millennium down. And then you want to get and understand about eternity. Fourteen concepts. If you learn those fourteen concepts individually, and I'm, I'm going to do this, uh, you know, once we get past the new year and the Christmas time and everything that's going on. When we started our institute, Two years ago, or about a year and a half ago, when we started our institute, I, I, I took the brightest and the, and, the, and the guys that have been around for a while that really wanted to commit themselves, and it's a commitment because they got to be there, you know, and they got to do their work. They got to be there. Uh, you know, it's not a thing that you can miss. It's something that really they have to really uh, be accountable to and, and all those things. And so I, I took some guys and some gals that, were, that really had the ability, had been here for a while, to teach. And I told them, I said, I'm going to teach you the Bible the way I got the Bible because my goal is is to get you down the line where, you know, down the road that when we do another institute class, and maybe the one after that, that uh, it frees me up that I can do what I do best and deal with people, and then you guys are, have the ability to teach the institute. Well, we have got a lot of young uh, Christians that have come in in the last year, and uh, you're all in the Bible, and you're all trying to grasp the concepts. And so I, I come up with the idea, you know, through this next year, some things that I want to do. And once we get past the... Uh, once we get past the busyness of, you know, the time that we're at and we get, uh, uh, you know, we get a, uh, you know, in the March and February where it's pretty much dead and there's nothing going on and everything just kind of flattens out. I'm going to take, I'm going to do this a couple of times throughout the year, but I'm going to take a, a Saturday and we'll take and we'll get people to let you know what it's going to be, how it's going to work out. And what I want to do is this, is I want to put together a Bible symposium or a Bible seminar. I want to take four or five of the guys out of the Institute who really have shown the ability to uh, basically bring and teach you through some of these subjects. And what we're going to do is this. We're going to take a Saturday. We're going to divide. If I get, let's say I get 40 people that want to do it. We'll, We'll have maybe four or five classes. Let's say we have five classes. Well, I'll evenly divide those four people uh, into five classes. So maybe there'll be like (coughs) six or seven in a class, whatever the case. Each class will be assigned a guy. Each guy will be assigned a subject. And what we'll do is we'll take one day and we'll get done in one day what would take us maybe six months to get through if we did it the other way. We'll start about 9 o'clock in the morning and here's what we'll do. We'll put one class over here, one class back here. We'll put a class over here, a class over there. We'll divide you up into five different classes. Those guys will have one hour by which they're going to bring you through a specific aspect, maybe the rapture, the second coming. We'll put them in a, an order that you can grasp the material and as you go, and then at the end of the day, what you're going to have is five or six subjects that you now have a really good understanding of. And then, you know, and, and, and you know what I did when I learned the Bible? When I learned the Bible, and, and somebody told me this, this is nothing that I <coughs> got on my own, I got those 14 areas down in my life. I thoroughly understood each one of them. I, I didn't try to eat the whole Bible at one time, you know. And, uh, you know, it's like the guy that ordered the pizza. And the guy says, uh, he says, uh, how many slices do you have in your pizza? And he said, well, we got 12. And the guy said, well, could you cut it in eight pieces? And the guy said, yeah, why? He said, because I don't think I can eat 12. See, that. Anyway, that's the way the Bible is. See? 
you've got to be able to break the Bible down in, in slices. And you've got to be able to look at it one piece at a time. And what I did is I, I took each subject and I, I got a thorough understanding of that subject. Then what I did is I began to bolt one subject to the next subject in the right order. And what it did was it, it, it gave me an understanding and an ability to be able to take the 14 things of the Bible and put them together, and then by studying each piece at one at a time, the whole Bible came into picture for me. Once I had that concept, the rest of it was pretty easy. The rest of it was just filling it in. Now, <clears throat> we're not going to try to do it on the level we do an institute <clears throat> because you're not ready for that yet. But we can set it up where at the end of a Saturday, you have, you know, and we'll have, we'll have lunch here. We'll provide lunch. We'll take a lunch break, and then we'll get back in. And we'll go from 9 o'clock to, you know, the time we get. You'll have five classes you got to go to, five hours plus a lunch break. You, at the end of the day, you will have a thorough or the material to be able to conceptually understand some of those major events in the Bible. Then we'll come back, what, in three or four months, and we'll do another symposium, another section, where we put the rest of them together, and then, you know, then I'll bring you all back together at some point and show you how to bolt all that stuff together. That's the key. That's the key. And I want to be putting that together here in the next couple of months and talking to some of the guys that uh, have been uh, really done a <coughs> great job in Institute and, and really have uh, uh, really uh, learned the material and uh, have stayed up with me and, and let me see where they're at and all of that. And, and, uh, but the bottom line is this. Before we can get into Romans chapter 8, we have to understand the concept of the rapture of the church. That is one thing that before we try to get into Romans 8, you've got to leave here today at least having a, an understanding. And I know that some of you will go out of here with the material I give you, and some of you will dig it in deeper and get it down, and you'll, you'll get it worked out. Some of you, <coughs> you'll take what I give you, you'll learn from it, <coughs> you'll not do a lot of investigating on it, but you'll walk out of here with a conceptual idea, and then obviously <coughs> there'll be some people that don't do anything with it, and you just have a general knowledge about it, and, and you can have what you want with it. But I think that it's absolutely crucial, and I thought about this all week, for me to try to get you into Romans chapter 8 and show you the redemption of your body before you understand the process and how it all ties together, I would, I would do it a great injustice, and I would do you a great injustice. And yet, there's another reason why I want to do this, and I think it needs to be done. And that is because, <clears throat> whether you know it or not, we're living in a day and age today, <clears throat> we're living in a day and age today that most Baptist churches, most Baptist churches, or many Baptist churches, uh, and certainly all of the, all of the <clears throat> middle of the line crowd, they do not teach nor do they believe anymore that there is going to be a rapture of the church. The more and more you deal with people, the more and more you're going to talk to people, the more you're going to find out that there's a teaching out there that the rapture is not a real event, that it was something that was concocted back in the last part of the middle part of the 1800s. And, <clears throat> hey, I've already seen on the History Channel two or three programs that basically debunked the rapture, as they would say it, the rapture theory. So it's out there. And I talk to people all the time that do not believe, <clears throat> you know, that there is <clears throat> going to be a rapture of the church. Round around the uh, 1900s and maybe maybe 20 years before that, 1880s, 
if you go back in, in history and you look at Christianity as it's where it's at, you're going to find a, 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 the rise of a, of, a, of a mindset of theology. We call it today, and you hear this term all the time, and many, many people hear the term, they don't understand the term. And I'm asked many, many times, what does that term mean? It's the term neo-evangelical. Neo-evangelical. The word neo means new. Evangelical is our word for evangelism. And what it, what it deals with, or what it really says, is neo means new. It means the new concept of evangelism. And neo-evangelical is, starts up back around the, oh, around 1900, and here's how it came into being. We're coming out of the, laid, uh, coming out of the Philadelphian church age, and the church is, the church is, is pretty much uh, on fire, and uh, the common man, like you and me, has a common Bible, the King James Bible, and uh, it has been a disaster to higher education because the most dangerous thing on this planet boy, does the devil ever know this, is a common man who believes a common Bible. And what the devil wanted to do is to stop that. So neo-evangelicalism, as we know it, was was a process that they were going to take back, and I'm oversimplifying it, they were going to take the Bible out of the common man's hand and put it back into the realm of scholarship. And that concept of neo-evangelicalism was a concept to get the Bible out of your hand as a common man and then put it back into scholarship where these people thought it belonged. And of course, uh, along with that comes the dumping of the King James Bible. And with the dumping of the King James Bible comes the darkness that you can't figure anything out uh, and that's why uh, they lose sight of these great doctrines. I guarantee you this. I will guarantee you this. Every pastor, every scholar, <coughs> everybody who teaches the Bible, <coughs> who will teach you or tell you there is no rapture of the church, is somebody who does not have believe that you have the complete perfect Word of God in your hand. In other words, they will not accept the King James Bible as the Word of God. You're going to be told, you're going to be told... <coughs> That the idea of the rapture, which you and I so believe in, and this is what Bubba played this morning out of Genesis chapter 24, the camel train come in, that's, that we talked about that before. <clears throat> You're going to be told that around the, around the latter part of the 1800s, there was a man over in England whose name was Darby. <clears throat> no, he's not the one that made Darby's Rangers. That was a little bit later on. But Darby was a Bible teacher. And he is... He is when somebody wants to debunk the rapture, they're going to take it back to Darby and say that Darby was the one who concocted the idea of a rapture. You're going to find the rapture is then taught around 1900, 1910 by another Bible teacher by the name of Clarence Larkin, which we sell his books in the back. You're going to find that if you would have an old Schofield Bible, I don't know how who anybody does here, But if you have an old Schofield Bible, that Schofield Bible is called a Schofield Bible because it's it's named after a man, C.I. Schofield. C.I. Schofield was a Confederate Civil War general. And I think after that, he was either the Attorney General or the Governor of Kansas. I can't remember what he did, but he was in politics in Kansas. Well, someplace along the line, C.I. Schofield got saved. He became a great Bible teacher. And for years and years and years, one of the greatest study Bibles that you could get your hands on 
<coughs> if you wanted to go that route, was a Schofield uh, study Bible. Because in that, it had all the notes that Schofield had put in. Schofield was a great Bible teacher that taught the rapture of the church as we believe it and as we teach it. You're told today that both Schofield and Clarence Larkin and Pember and everybody else who was teaching it during that period of time got it from Darby. And you're told that Darby's the one that concocted it, and therefore these guys got it from the teaching of, of Darby, and therefore we have it today because it's been handed down through Schofield and Larkin and Pember and, uh, and, and Pentecost and all of these guys that wrote great things, and that's why we have it today. And of course, that's simply not true, and we're going to talk about that, because I want you to understand this concept today. This is not as preaching as, as much as an edification before we get into Romans chapter 8, that you have to know these things. Now, <clears throat> one of the arguments, one of the arguments <clears throat> is the fact that the word rapture is not found in the Bible. And I, obviously, <clears throat> it's a weak argument. <clears throat> if you were a Catholic, if you were a Methodist, if you were a Presbyterian, if you were a Lutheran, or you were a, 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 a Episcopalian, uh, none of those ever taught that there was anything as a rapture. They have never believed that there was a rapture of the church. We'll talk about that why in a moment. But when the evangelicals come out, or the neo-evangelicals come out, and they will be your churches that you find, just so we identify them. If you're walking, driving down the street, you want to remember this, if you see a church and it says Bible church, if you see a church that says community church, if you see a church that says uh, church of the chapel of the uptide hill or some church that doesn't have a denominational name in it, that will be a neo-evangelical or what they call today evangelical church. Now, evangelical means evangelism. To me, it means no Bible whatsoever because you're going to find that the thing that has destroyed Bible Christianity is the fact that... Uh, uh, they, they don't understand what they believe. And one of the arguments, and a man said this to me a while back, he said, do you believe the rapture? And I said, yes, I believe the Bible teaches the rapture of the church. <clears throat> he said, well, what do you do with the fact that you don't find the word rapture in the Bible? Like that was now supposed to shake me. You know, oh, oh God, I didn't know that. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, what am I going to do? Oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. <clears throat> I said, you believe the Bible is the word of God? Absolutely. I said, show me the word Bible in the Bible. You know what, if you, it's, it's 12 noon, and you walk out of the saloon, and you call out the sheriff, and you stand out in the middle, and the sheriff with your six guns on, and you call me out to a, shot, a shootout, I got one of them little belt buckles, I don't even pull my guns, I just lick my stomach, and the gun comes out and blows you right between the eyes, you see. I mean, the idea that it can't be true, because it ain't found in the Bible. I said, what church you go to? <clears throat> he says, well, I'm a Methodist. I said, show me Methodist in the Bible. I said, now, if you got any friends that are Presbyterian, show me the word Presbyterian in the Bible. I said, you got, you got some friends that are Catholic? Show me the word Catholic in the Bible. You got some Episcopalian? Show me the word Episcopalian in the Bible. Now, I said, I don't mean to rain on your parade or give you a bad day or ruin your life, but I do know where the word Baptist is in the Bible. John the Baptist? Hi, I'm Bob the Baptist, friend of John the Baptist. I'm in the Bible. Now, I'm not in the Bible that way, but he's so stupid, he didn't know that. See? In other words, you know, in pretense or truth, preach Christ. And you know, sometimes, you, you know, it's like one time I was, <clears throat> I was preaching down in, uh, down in El Salvador. And I had a bunch of <clears throat> Spanish people down there who listened to me preach. 
at about that time, some Church of Christ people. Now, Church of Christ people believe you've got to be baptized to go to heaven, see? And they hate Baptists. And, and I don't hate anybody, and I don't hate, but I, if I did run over them with a bus, I'd back up and make sure that I got both tires on them so they wouldn't do any more damage. Well, I'm the kind of guy, remember the time we had a discipleship thing in our church and the Jehovah Witnesses came to the door? I had like 15 or 10 of you over there, and I was teaching how to disciple, and I, and I looked out there, and it was just, <clears throat> thanks, you, Jimmy. <clears throat> <clears throat> a donut would have really went nice with that, too, you know. <clears throat> Good vodka. Anyway, we're sitting down there, you know, and I go to the door, and a Jehovah Witness show up. <clears throat> and they had their watchtowers, you know. And, and they said, we're Joe Winter. I said, oh, we're having a Bible study. I said, uh, I said do, you have any, do you have any material? And they gave me one of the white cards. I said, can I have about 20 or 30 of them? I said, we're having a Bible study in here, and I'd like to give some of them your material. And they gave me 20 or 30. And I said, I've got some friends. And she said, we have someone in the car. Gave me another 20 or 30. Now I've got like 50 or 60 of them, see? And I said, hey, thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah. As they, you know, go with God, my child. God, nice to see you, you know. Went in the house. Did anybody want any of these to study thing off of? Gave one each one, and then threw the rest of them in the trash. So what do you do that for? I just kept 50 people from getting those things. See? That's what you do. I put down a saddle one time, and I was wetting them having about getting saved. And, some, and, a, and I saw them when they came in. You know, you can tell them. They, they, the way they dress. And they come in the back, and I was in there preaching. And I don't speak Spanish. I mean, I know Banyo, that's bathroom, but that's about all the farther I go. So I'm up there preaching, and the guy in the back, they're standing like this. And all these people are listening to me. And right in the middle of the thing, I'm preaching on being saved, and a guy yelled in the back, yeah, what about Acts 2.38? Well, who couldn't handle that? But, you know, how are you going to get in a gun battle with somebody in Acts 2.38? And then the other guy yelled, yeah, what do you do with Mark 16.16, brother? Now, this is not the place. And when they did that, every Spanish guy in that place looked back at them and then looked up at me like, what are you going to say? Now, I am not going to get into theological discussion about Mark 16, 6 and Acts 2, 28 when I'm trying to get 100 people saved. But what am I going to do? You call me out? You got your six guns on? You know what I did? I said, well, let me ask you, brother. What about Isaiah 96, 4? And I'll tell you something else. What about, what about Habakkuk 29, 26? And I'll tell you something else. What about 1 Chronicles 104, 9? And I said, I'll tell you something else. What about, what about 2 Peter 65, 4? And all those guys were looking at me, turned back and look at them. <laughs> now, none of those verses are in the Bible. <laughs> and they just looked at me and went, and walked away, see? But I won. I won. And I went on and preached, had 20, 30 people saved, you see? I mean, you know, as old Bob Jones used to senior say, bring him around, let the old man talk to him. I mean, yeah, I mean... The word Bible's not found in the Bible. I'll tell you something else. The word sacrament's not found in the Bible. The word Eucharist is not found in the Bible. Infant baptism is not found in the Bible. The word mass is not found in the Bible. But Baptist is. Now, my goal today is, is not to go back through church history. We don't have the time, and we don't really need to, and show you there that there are true uh, uh, biblical people who lived long before uh, Darby showed up who believed what you and I believe. But rather, I just want to show you the Bible itself. Now, to me and to anybody who knows the Bible, and this is why it's so important that you not only learn the 12 things or 14 things that we talked about, 
This is why it's so important that you learn Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. How these things componently lay out for you, go together with everything that you need to know and understand. Because the issue is fairly simple. If there's no rapture, if there's no rapture of the church, then you are left, ladies and gentlemen, with an impossible situation. Absolutely impossible if there is no rapture of the church. And you know what your problem is? If, there, if you don't have a rapture, your problem is, what do you do with Romans chapter 8? How do you get your new body? How does that happen? How do you put, how does this corruption put on incorruption? How does this mortality put on immortality if there's not a process to do it? Now, here's the key. A Catholic, Presbyterian, or Methodist, or Episcopalian, or any of those groups, along with the evangelicals, don't have a problem with that. You know why? Because none of them really believe that Jesus Christ is coming back anyhow. They're not premillennial like the Bible teaches you and I are. They are either amillennial or postmillennial. They don't even believe that Christ is coming back. So for them to accept a rapture when they don't even accept the coming of Christ to begin with. You see how it is easy for them to do that? In other words, the bottom line is this. You lose your Bible, you lose everything. And when the neo-evangelicals around the turn of the century, when they, when they come up to take the Bible out of the common man and put it back into scholarship... That's exactly what they did. They took, they took the Bible from the common man, and once you lose your Bible, you are done. God then closes the door of revelation. God then will not show you anything else out of that book because the key to getting anything out of the Bible is not buying a King James Bible from old past. It's not buying one or getting one with the notes in it or as some of you do on Thursday night and I see you, you sneak up and try to get look at mine and, and, and somebody said one time, I wish I could have your Bible for just a week. Why? You wouldn't be able to understand it. You get in there and you're saying, what is this? What is that? What, is, what has he got here? What does that mean? It, 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 you, can't, you can't get spirituality off somebody else all the time. Well, you have to grow up to be your own spiritual man and woman. And you have to grow up developing your own Bible system of putting the Bible together. I can give you some of the basics. But when you lose your Bible, Bible is the only book in the world that what you believe about it is the cause and effect of what you get out of it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, a salient verse. It says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It's real simple. You don't believe it, it doesn't work in you. It's the only book in the world that you have to believe something specifically about it to get something out of it. And if there is no rapture, my friend, or no process, then you and I are left with an impossible situation. You might as well just cut Romans chapter 8 out of your Bible. And what we need to do today, basically, is get a basic definition of the rapture. So we can better understand the events of our Bible and put it into perspective as we get into Romans chapter 8. And with that in mind, there's a couple of passages that I want to look at today. But before we do that, 
I told you to go to Romans chapter 7. Go back to Romans chapter 7 and let's look at, uh, at something here we want to get uh, in the end of chapter 7 that really is the catalyst. And I told you when we studied it and broke down Romans chapter 7, that is the bridge to Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 7 verse 24. O wicked man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body, there's your flesh, of this death? Now that's a question. The answer is in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. In other words, we're going to get delivered someday. We're going to get delivered from, say, from the law of this flesh and all of its damnable stuff that just gives us problems. And I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God. There's your soul, the real you, the part that's saved. But with the flesh, the law of sin. See, you're only half saved. See that thing? Your body's not saved yet. Now, you're as good as in heaven with the door shut, and you're seated in heavenly places. But technically speaking, your body has not been redeemed yet. Now, Romans chapter 8, and the subject is the redemption of your body and the deliverance that we're looking for that we talked about in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 through 25. Now, with that little intro, let's pray and, and let's get into the book. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Ask you now, Father, to take our time today. Help us to put it together, to learn from it, to grow through it, and to be stronger for you. Help every man and woman who wants to learn about God, who wants to learn this Bible, <coughs> to get it all into perspective in every aspect of their lives. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. All right, now take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, these are great companion passages. These are passages that show you very clearly. And we don't have to go back through church history, though we could. <coughs> these are passages very clearly. Once you understand or basically grasp a concept that you have to get a glorified body, and that's what Romans 8 is, and Romans 8 fits into the Romans chapter 6 and 7, then these are great companion passages or great support passages that show you there's a process that God's going to do that. All right, let's look at verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It, it, here it comes. Now, this is what you want to see. This is talking about your body. It is sown in corruption. That's where we're at right now. It is raised in incorruption. That's our, when we get our glorified body. Look at verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. That's right now. It is raised in glory. There it is right now. It's coming, see? Look at, look. It is sown in weakness. There it is right now. It is raised in power. There it's going to be. Look at 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. See that thing? There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are also that are earthy, you and me. And as is the heavenly, so are they also that are heavenly. That's you and me saved. 
And as we have borne the image of the earthly, right now, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. It's coming, Romans chapter 8. See that thing? Now that tells you right there, and we're not done yet, that tells you right there that there, there, you're going to get a new glorified body. It told you, what, nine times. Now this I, verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Ah, here it comes, verse 51. But I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not everybody's going to die, but we're all going to be changed. Whether you're dead or you're alive, you're going to get a glorified body. Watch this, verse 52, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. Now, you know what? You ask your, and I, 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 this is where I, when, I, when I get into a little technical thing with them, this is what I ask them. I take them over here. Let me ask you, there's two sets of trumpets in the Bible. Ask your guy who believes there's no, ask your, ask your garden variety neo-evangelical neo to explain those two sets of trumpets. He couldn't do it, but life depended on it. There are two sets of trumpets in your Bible. <clears throat> one set of trumpets is for the second coming of Christ. The other one is for the rapture of the church. Of course, if you don't believe in the second coming of Christ as literal, why would you believe in a literal uh, Christ coming when uh, the rapture? All right, it says, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, <clears throat> and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, your flesh right now, must put on incorruption, your new glorified body. And this mortal right now must put on immortality, what you're going to get. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, ah, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now we're in the context of Romans chapter 8, and the last part of Romans chapter 7. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Here it comes. You want to know where it's at? I'll tell you where it's at. Verse 57. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His salvation. Now you see that thing? This passage clearly shows us that we're going to be changed. You didn't get that from Darby. <clears throat> you didn't get that from Bob Alexander. You didn't get that from C.I. Schofield. Just because they knew it and understood it because they believed a book that revealed it and you believe it, don't believe a book that doesn't, doesn't change the fact. Now once we, obviously we have a problem. Once we clearly define the fact that we are, we are going to be changed, then there has to be a process for that transformation, doesn't there? Alright, let's look at another one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <coughs> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Pick it up in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, <coughs> concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Now I want you to see verse 15. It didn't say, for this we say, by, the, by Darby's teachings. You see that? It says, it didn't say, for this we say unto you, by the fact that C.I. Schofield had a note on it in his old Schofield reference Bible. You see what it's saying here? It says, this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. 
that are in any man or his writings connected with what you're about to read, it is the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now here it comes. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a vork of the archangel and the trump of God. There's the trumpet that we just saw back in the first Corinthians chapter 15. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, watch it, shall be caught up together. Caught up, caught up, caught up where? Caught up, 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 caught up. Together with them in the cloud. Oh, in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. <clears throat> and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another word. Now, in 1 Corinthians, 15, we, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we saw that we will be changed. You should now have that established and you want to put that note in your Bible. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it shows how we're changed. There's a catching away, verse 17. The concept of the rapture is based on the word of the Lord, verse 15. And the believers are caught up. Now let me talk to you a minute about the word rapture. And I will address the issue when a guy says to you, <clears throat> guy, as a guy said to me, and I'm, I'm a great one. And I wouldn't do it to any of you because you're all trying to learn. But you give me somebody that wants to pick a fight with me on the Bible. And he would say to me, which they have. He'll say to me, well, you know what? What do you do with the fact that the word rapture is not in the Bible? And I'll ask him, well, the word rapture not be in the Bible, but where did the word rapture come from? I know where it came from. Tell me where the word rapture came from. I'll tell you something else. Tell me what the word rapture means. Right now, right now, tell me what it means. Tell me where it came from based on what it means. He isn't going to have a clue. You know, I'm very suspect of people that tell me something can't be when they don't even understand what it is or what it isn't to begin with. You think if somebody's going to stand up there and tell me this isn't right, you'd have it figured out. That's why you came to the conclusion it wasn't right. Please don't tell me it isn't right because you don't like it. I give you a hundred thousand things in that book that I don't like, but they're right. When you get off coming to me saying, well, here, I, this is, you're wrong and this is the way it is. Really? Here, bozo, show me. Come on, bugwit, show me where it's at. There's the book. Show me what you're talking about. Show me where, all right, show me where rapture came from. Show me how it got circulated. You don't find the word in the Bible, but run it back and show me what it means and then associate it with one book in the Bible where it would fit. You don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. You know what the word rapture means? It means transported by passive, by passion. It means transported by passion, by great joy, transported by passion to be ravished. It means transported by extreme joy and delight and pleasure. Now I'm going to teach you on New Year's Eve. Now, I'm not going to destroy what I've got for you by giving you any lead-ins on the thing, but when I started to put together the teaching of the Song of Solomon, a great fact struck me. Most of you have come out of, out of other churches. Some of you out of Baptist churches. <clears throat> Some of you out of other churches. You know what struck me when I began to put the stuff together for the Song of Solomon? It struck me the fact that I don't think in all the churches that I've been in, in all my life, at all the places that I've listened to the tapes and in the ministries that I've seen of men and women, I don't think I've ever heard a pastor in my life ever teach on or preach out of the book of Song of Solomon, other than my own. 
And that struck me. Why is that? Because I understand that the book of Song of Solomon, if you're ever going to have a relationship with Christ the way it needs to be, you're going to have to get the book of Song of Solomon down. Now, I've got to tell you, <coughs> on New Year's Eve, I'm not <coughs> coming through this thing from a doctrinal perspective and showing you this and showing you the tribulation. I'm not even going there. I'm going to, when you, and I don't have a lot of time to do it, but when you leave here on, thir- on, on New Year's Eve, when you start your new year, if you so desire, and that is where you're headed and what you're looking for in life, you are going to have the book of Song of Solomon broken down for you in a system that from this point on, and I'm going to give you some guidelines that when we get that night, that you're going to understand every aspect of how he looks at you and how you're supposed to look at him. And you're going to have in your toolbox everything that you need in the most intimate book in the Bible. And I guarantee you, if you understood the book of Song of Solomon, as many of the old-time Christians did, and you recognized it as the most intimate, most beautiful, most perfect book in the Bible as to your relationship and attitude toward Christ, there is only one word in the human language which means transported by passion, transported by love, transported by extreme joy. There's only one word, and we don't use the word anymore, but the word is the word rapture. The word is to be taken off being caught up, caught up in a love affair with your Savior that the transportation from planet Earth, because you understand Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and the great Romans chapter 8, the redemption of your body, not just the redemption of your soul, but you understand the price that was paid, how he views you, what your job is, and you enter into that. I'm going to show you in the Song of Solomon, there is a secret garden, a secret garden, a secret garden that if you're not in on a daily basis and you don't understand the secret garden, no wonder we got the struggles we have. Your wife does not go in this garden, your husband does not go in this garden, your children does not go in this garden. It is a secret garden for you and Christ. And what is in that garden is where the word rapture came from by a human expression of someone that was overwhelmed with understanding what God has gotten for them. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, You know why that they don't believe in the rapture anymore? You don't know why they don't like the word rapture anymore? I'll tell you why. Because you throw an open book and the Song of Solomon in front of these bozos and they wouldn't be able, they'd be like a blind bat trying to back in backwards, figuring it out. They couldn't get anything out of that book. You know why? Because when you reject the book, God closes the book and there's no more revelations. And for you and for me, at Old Paths Baptist Church, we either are going to be or we are going to be not. We are not going to be in the middle. We are either going to learn how to have the relationship and it's going to work for you the way God intended it to be, or we're just going to piddle paddle around and, 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 and do what Christians mostly do. The word rapture is based on somebody understanding the great book of the Song of Solomon, which you will at the end of New Year's Eve. 
Now, there's another reason that, that people have lost track of the rapture. You remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. And you're going to find in your Bible that there are seven mysteries listed. And yet you're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that as we as Christians, especially me as a pastor, I'm to be a steward of those mysteries. In other words, I ought to be teaching the mysteries to you on a regular basis or reminding you of them. And of course, we first one of the first things we did when we started our church was come through the, the mysteries in the Bible. You can get them online. And you, you ask this one of these guys, you ask one of these guys, bottom line is you ask one of these guys to tell them what the seven mysteries are in the Bible. They couldn't do it if you put a pistol in their head and told them that if you didn't give them to you in an hour, you were going to blow their brains out. You'd be, at the end of an hour, you'd have a lot of mess on your hands. Look at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. There are seven things in the Bible. Six by Paul, one by Peter. Six things in your Bible. That the child of God is told not seven things in your Bible, excuse me, that the child of God is told not to be ignorant of. And yet I find in dealing with common people, common Christians and pastors and, and teachers of the Bible, they are the most ignorant of these seven things you've ever found in your life. It's within these things that you're told not to be ignorant of. It's within these seven mysteries that we are told to be stewards of that you find preserved for you the concept of the catching up. The rapture. It's a mystery. And God is not going to reveal His mysteries to anybody who does not believe this book. Now, I think probably, and I want you to turn back to the book of Revelation now. I don't think I can use my chart on this. Turn back to the book of Revelation. I want to show you why I believe the Bible teaches there's a rapture after I gave you the two verses. When I was growing up and the old boys were teaching me, they would tell me this. They would say, you can never just teach a doctrine from a type in the Bible alone. They would say, you never can get up and say, well, here's a type. This type proves the doctrine. What they would say is, but you always let the type show you the doctrine as an illustration of what the Word of God has clearly laid out someplace else. Now, maybe some of you can't grab that, but it's a, it's a great concept. Now, you look at the book of Revelation. You're going to need both hands for this. Get Revelation chapter 4 in one hand, and get Revelation chapter 19 in another hand. Now, remember I told you when we started coming through here that some of the major events in your Bible was the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, and the millennial reign of Christ and eternity. All right? Now, the book of Revelation is basically your capstone of the Bible. Get Revelation chapter 4 in one hand, Revelation chapter 19 in the other. And I, I don't, if you want to take this home or you want to come over and help me work this out, book of Revelation, you're told many, many times, is one of the hardest books in the Bible. It's not. It's probably the easiest book in the Bible. Let me show you how this outline works. Now look in Revelation chapter 4. Look at verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard 
was as it were a what? A trumpet. Look at that thing. A trumpet. And what does that trumpet say? Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Look at verse 2. And immediately, you mean like in a twinkling of an eye? Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. See that thing? Now, keep your finger there. Come back to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies, look at that verse 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, you know what you got? In Revelation chapter 4, right here, somebody goes up. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, right here. See the army? That's me. I'm right there. <laughs> Somebody comes down. Now, you know, you know what I got in my Bible in the book of Revelation? I got a book by the way it's broken down that shows you exactly that there is a rapture. Now, watch how this thing works. Now, you don't have time to do it right now, but uh, if you get the tape, you can go back through it. Read through Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and 3. When you read through Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, you're going to find the church, the word church, the word church, like our church. You're going to find the word church at least 19 times. You're going to find it in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. You're going to find in three little chapters the word church, C-H-U-R-C-H, church, for 19 times, at least. 19 times. In Revelation chapter 4, the Bible says a door goes up in heaven. And a voice like a trumpet, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, says, come up, hever, up hither, caught up, caught up, caught up. And after Revelation chapter 4, you never find the word church anywhere in the Bible again. You know why? It's raptured out. Here's what you got. Revelation chapter 4 is the rapture of the church. Revelation chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Let's see if the order of the book of the Revelation lines up with my chart up here. Church, 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 church. What was this period, ladies and gentlemen? Church age. Church, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You'll find the same seven churches in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 by name. That's the church age, Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Revelation 4, door open in heaven, voice like a trumpet, da -da 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 -da, come up hither, and you never find the word church again. But you know what you do find? Revelation chapter 5 and 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. You know what you find? Tribulation period. Tribulation runs from chapter 5 up to chapter 18. And then in chapter 19, heaven opens up again. This time, somebody comes back. Now, what's after Revelation chapter 19? Revelation chapter 20. What's after second coming of Christ on our chart? 1,000 years reign of Christ. You know what Revelation chapter 20 is? The millennial reign of Christ. You know what's after chapter 20? Chapter 21. 
You know what chapter 21 is? Chapter 21, you know what you get out here? New heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. You know what Revelation chapter 21 is? New heavens and a new Jerusalem. You know what Revelation chapter 22 is? Eternity. You know what you got after this? Eternity. That book of Revelation breaks itself down, shows you the church age, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Door opens up in heaven. Somebody goes up. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, up to 18, all tribulation. 19, somebody comes down. 20 is the millennium. 21 is new heaven and new earth. 22 is eternity. It shows you that heaven opens up two times. One of them, somebody goes up, and one of them, somebody comes down. There is a rapture. There is a rapture. There is a rapture. If you're an evangelical, you may not have a rapture. You probably got a rupture, but there is a rapture. Romans chapter 8 is the great key chapter of us being delivered from the body of this flesh. Right now, your soul is saved. But there's coming a time, your flesh is not yet, but there's coming a time when your body of this flesh is going to be changed into His glorified body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, book of Revelation, and that is covered for you and detailed out for you and the process is laid out in Romans chapter 8. You don't have a rapture. You got no logical conclusion for Romans chapter 8 even being in your Bible. Now I'm going to show you something else. Oh, you're going to like this. I told you the greatest key in your life as a Christian is your ability to be consistent. Inconsistency will kill you. The key to the Christian life is consistency. It's no strange wonder then, ladies and gentlemen, that the key to learning the Bible or the Bible revealing itself to you is the same word, consistency. Once the Bible says something, defines something, lays something out, it will stay in line with that right through the whole Bible, and you can always bank on it, and that's how you learn. For instance, have you ever taken the first coming of Christ, when He came the first time, right here, and compared what took place back there with what is going to take place when He comes back the second time? Have you ever for a moment of time just sat down on some rainy afternoon and compared the consistencies between what happened at the first coming and what is going to happen at the second coming? There's an old adage that we say many times, and I say it a lot around here, and it's not original to me, but it's this. The only thing men never learn from history is the fact that men never learn anything from history. History repeats itself. And that's especially true when it comes to the Bible and the Word of God. And you're going to find that there's some incredible, absolutely incredible. You want to find out what it's going to be like there? How, what the time we're living in now, what you can know, what you need to worry about, what you need to look out for, what you need to be aware of. Go back and study what it was here. Because consistency is not only true in your individual life, it's also true in, in the Bible. Now, when I used to teach about the stars and, and astronomy and everything, when I went into little... Little, uh, I, I used to love doing elementary school. I, my funnest kid to teach about the stars, because you can't get real technical, and it was always good for me to kind of low palm it, because I had to get down on their level. 
and I used to go and do these little classes with, you know, sixth graders and, and fifth graders, and, and they, it was just a ball. I'd take slide things, you know, and I'd, I'd ask the question, as I start out, I'd say, how many of you got a telescope? And a bunch, and then I would talk about, what have you seen? And the one little guy, you'd always get somebody that said, I've been to the moon, I've been to the moon, you know. And I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have. You know, you don't need to go on like that. But here's what I do, kind of get in it. You know, you get up and you're saying, all right, now, boys and girls, I'm going to talk to you today about astronomy, and your teacher invited me in here today, and so we're going to talk about astronomy, and I'm going to show you some pictures and try to relate to you some of the things. That don't go over with them kids. No, you got to get on their level, see? So you go in there and you say, all right, kids, we're going to take a trip in outer space. Let's all stand up. They all stand up. They like that. And I say, now, what's the first thing we got to do before we go out of outer space? What do we need? Somebody say, we need a spacesuit." And I say, that's right. It's everybody. Put on your spacesuit. And then I put my leg up, you know, and put that leg in, and they'd always put their little legs up. And I guess you had to be there. But then put the other leg in, you know, and I put it. I said, come on now, get it up. And they zip up their spacesuits, and I say, all right, we're ready to go. Now, what do we need next? Oh, we need, we need a helmet. Oh, okay. Put your helmet on. We don't want to get caught in outer space without a helmet. Oh, make sure, just make sure they're locked now. And put that thing on and, oh, there it is, you know. And now, he's, now we're ready. Now they're with you, see. Now they're with you. Okay. Let's all pretend we got seat belts on our seats. Grab them up. That's right, Zach. Put them on. Yeah, he's got a cross section, see there. All right, I'm telling you, I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to take you somewhere. I don't want anybody. You don't put your seat belt on. Nobody has except Zach and William. You fall out of your seat. Don't sue the church. <laughs> Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. When Christ came the first time back here, Israel was captive by a type of the Antichrist. His name was Herod. When Christ comes the second time, Israel will be held captive by the Antichrist. When Christ came the first time, Rome was in power. Christ comes the second time, Rome will be in power. Christ came the first time, the Jews were in the homeland. Christ coming the second time, the Jews are in the homeland. When Christ came the first time, the nation of Israel was in total, deep apostasy. When Christ comes a second time, the nation of Israel is in total, corrupt, deep apostasy. When, John came, when Christ came the first time, John the Baptist was the forerunner. When Christ comes the second time, Elijah will be the forerunner. And you're told in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, that John the Baptist came in the person and the spirit of Elijah. When Christ came the first time, there was one universal language. It was Greek. When Christ is going to come the second time, there's going to be one universal language. It's going to be English. When Christ came the first time, the whole world was under, the whole world was under a military dictatorship. When Christ comes the second time, the whole world is going to be under a military dictatorship. You know, there's a thing out today that a lot of people have a lot of problems with. And sometimes you'll hear about it, and if you haven't heard it, you'll hear it sooner or later. It's the, what they call advanced revelation. 
and the argument that they have, and again, it's by people who don't believe the Bible. Their thinking basically is this, and I don't know how to simplify it, so I'll just make it simple. They think that if God didn't show it to them, He can't show it to you. Let me say something to you. There's lots of things that God has shown this church that He never showed Clarence Larkin. There's lots of things that some of you know that C.I. Schofield never knew. You know why that is? Because the events of his day, many times, of the political events, the social events, you may read something in the Bible, but you not put it into a relative perspective till the event in your life coincides with the, with the event in your own life. Now that's called advanced revelation, or God, as history goes on, that God through His Bible keeps revealing things as things in this world become apparent that we didn't see it, and now it's revealed for what it is because we're living in a time period when it actually happens. Clarence Larkin had no idea that in 1948 the nation of Israel was going to become a nation. So you know why? He read in Isaiah, read in Jeremiah, read in Ezekiel, those places where it says that God's going to take them back to the land. That was just a future event that he had no concept or no portal in time on. But you see, it happened in 1948, didn't it? Once it happened, I could go back and see how that thing came into perspective. You know what that's called? I'm, the, whole world was under, the whole world was under a military dictatorship. Christ comes a second time, the whole world is going to be under a military dictatorship. You know, there's a thing out today that a lot of people have a lot of problems with. And sometimes you'll hear about it, and if you haven't heard it, you'll hear it sooner or later. It's the, what they call advanced revelation. And the argument that they have, and again, it's by people who don't believe the Bible. Their thinking basically is this, and I don't know how to simplify it, so I'll just make it simple. They think that if God didn't show it to them, He can't show it to you. Let me say something to you. There's lots of things that God has shown this church that he never showed Clarence Larkin. There's lots of things that some of you know that C.I. Schofield never knew. You know why that is? Because the events of his day, many times, of the political events, the social events, you may read something in the Bible, but you not put it into a relative perspective till the event in your life coincides with the, with the event in your own life. Now that's called advanced revelation, or God, as history goes on, that God through His Bible keeps revealing things as things in this world become apparent that we didn't see it, and now it's revealed for what it is because we're living in a time period when it actually happens. Clarence Larkin had no idea that in 1948 the nation of Israel was going to become a nation. So you know why? He read in Isaiah, read in Jeremiah, read in Ezekiel, those places where it says that God's going to take them back to the land. That was just a future event that he had no concept or no portal in time on. But you see, it happened in 1948, didn't it? Once it happened, I could go back and see how that thing came into perspective. You know what that's called? That's called advanced revelation. That's called God keeps revealing things through His book as the time element of earth and planet earth and the life on it keeps revolving itself and these Bible things come into play. That's what it means. That's what it means. When Christ came the first time, the 
there was a global economy with a world tax. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is your last chance to buckle up. And for those of you, I do suggest that you put your tray tables up in an upright position. But I hate for the person in back of you to bust their head when they pass out. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, here it comes, that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, says this. Talking about the Antichrist through the person of the great red dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, and called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. <coughs> Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 5 through 6, one of the greatest references in all of the Bible on the devil as the Antichrist, says this. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, and his burrows were multiplied, and his branches became long because of the multitude of the waters when he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their nest in his burrows. This is talking about the devil now being like a tree. The fowls here would be demonic spirits. Made their nest in his burrows, and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring their forth their young. Here it comes. And under his shadow dwelt all great nations. When the Antichrist comes into being, he's going to pull together the world into a one world concept. He's going to pull together all the nations. He's going to pull together by a deceiving everybody on planet earth that is left. And they are going to come in just like at the first coming of Christ to an absolute global economy. You already see it in Europe. They have a euro. The euro is the common money, denominator money for every consolidated nation over in, in Europe. You know why there's no borders on Mexico and we can't get any up? You know why they won't put any up on the northern borders of Canada? And you can squawk and squawk and squawk and no president will do it. You know why? Because right now as we speak, they're talking about the same thing over here as there was over there. The globalization of North America, Central America, and South America into the Americas. For economic purposes and for stability. Do you know how that would end the problems we have with, with the economy if there wasn't a stock market here and a stock market there, that it was all in one central thing? Don't you know when you get, have 28 kids that you're in charge of and you're trying to find out where all those 28 kids are? Don't you know it's much easier just to watch one kid? Or if you have 28, put them in a pen <laughs> where they're corralled. Does it not make any sense that a global economy, where we have one, China's got one, Japan's got one, Europe's got one, Australia's got one, wouldn't it be much better just to control it and to fix all the problems if it was all just one? Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11.
Daniel chapter 11, verse 19. <clears throat> then he, all talking about something within the Antichrist kingdom, and this is one of the most incredible, absolutely credible passage. The implications in this chapter are absolutely mind-boggling to where we live at the end of 2008 going into 2009 with the political system around the world and in our own country. That he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall stand up in his estate, watch it, a razor of taxes. You see that thing? That's the Antichrist. The razor of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flattery. Now, what I'm saying is this. When I said verse 20 with the Antichrist in preparation for the Antichrist, look at this. The Antichrist himself is in verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Somebody before the Antichrist, somebody before the Antichrist in the world system is going to set the thing up where there is a one world setup, a one world economy that the whole world, just like at the first coming of Christ, is going to raise the taxes on the whole world at the second coming of Christ. You're not going to beat the book. That would have never made any sense any time in history till in the last two or three years in this country, maybe four or five years, with the economic downturn, that there's something that has to be done. There's something that has to be done, and no one person, no country is going to fix it. The bailouts aren't going to fix it. Nothing is going to fix it. It's going to take one man or the idea of men who come up with a globalization of understanding that it's better to watch one kid in a room than 28 kids with a room and a kid representing the economies. And just like at the first coming of Christ when Caesar, a Roman, type of the Antichrist, had a world tax and demanded everybody to pay, at the second coming of Christ, it's being set up right now that when a man comes on the scene and he takes over the estate through flatteries and through a peaceable means, the thing he's going to do is raise world taxes. Why in the world is that phrase about why, who cares that the Antichrist or somebody connected with is going to be a raiser of taxes if it didn't fit back into the first coming of Christ? Now, we ain't got to the best part yet. Those are the consistencies that show you one or the other. And I've given them to you. Christ came the first time, Israel was captive. Christ second time, they're captive. Christ came the first time, Rome's in power. Second time, Rome's in power. First time, Jesus, Jews are in the homeland. Second time, all through those things. Now, you want to see, you want to see, you want to see the great harvest of God? You want to see the rapture of God? Nothing like the book, ladies and gentlemen. Remember the consistency now, first coming, second coming. At the first coming of Christ, at the first coming of Christ, when Jesus showed up the first time, he came privately to his family first. And then a period of time later, he revealed himself at the start of his public ministry to the whole world. At the second coming of Christ, he's going to reveal himself privately to his family first. At the rapture of the church. And then at the end of the tribulation, to the whole world at the second coming of Christ. That's the book. There is a rapture. 
It doesn't matter if Darby ever figured it out or he didn't figure it out. It doesn't matter if C.I. Schofield ever had a note on it at all. The Bible is very clear that when you understand Romans chapter 8, there has to be a process to get Romans chapter 8 into our lives. One of the greatest stories in the Bible is the story of Enoch. You know, Enoch's the only man in the Bible that never died. Ask that to the guy that tells you there is no rapture. Ask him why that Enoch's the only man in the Bible that never died, and he's going to come back to you. Well, that's not true. Elijah didn't die. And my answer back to him is, is I put a bullet right between his eyes. Yeah, that may be true, but he's coming back and dying in the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 11, Zechariah chapter 14. Only man in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Only man in the Bible from there to there. Only man in the Bible from there to there who never dies is Enoch. Unless you're still alive when it comes right here. Did you ever see the life of Enoch? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, verse. there's only nine verses in the whole Bible on him. Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Says, and Jared lived 160 and two years and begot Enoch. And Jared lived after he begot Enoch 800 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and was not where God took him. Enoch got raptured. Heard an old preacher say one time, Enoch walked with God for 365 years. They had a great day. Had always had a great time. One day God come down and said, Hey, Enoch, what do you want to do today? And Enoch says, I don't know, man. We've 365 years. We've been just having a great time. I'll tell you what. Well, you do, we'll do whatever you want to do. We did what I did last week. You, Lord... Let's do what you want to do. And he said, well, I've been kind of thinking, you know, Enoch, uh, why don't you come up and, you know, I've been coming down here and spending time with you every day. Why don't you come up and spend a day with me up in heaven? Enoch said, whoa, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. He said, yeah, come on up and spend a day in heaven. So he went up and spent a day in heaven, found out there was no night and been there ever since. (laughs) He got raptured. He got raptured. He got raptured. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. The last two verses in all the Bible on Enoch. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. For without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Enoch went out. One day God translated him and raptured him right off planet earth. And he went up to heaven. The old boys used to say, you can't teach a type. You can't teach a doctrine by a type. But the type will always support the doctrine when you have the verses. I showed you there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I showed you there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I showed you there in Romans chapter 8. You're going to get a glorified body. No question about it. Then I showed you the process. We're going to be caught up. Did you ever look at the circumstances around Enoch? Enoch lived right here. You know what happened right here? The flood. You know what the flood was? The flood was God's judgment on this earth. You know, you go back in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel, you know what the flood is likened to? It's likened to the tribulation period. 
You know what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24? As it was in the days of who? Noah. Noah. So shall be in the coming of the what? The Son of Man. You know what you got back there? You got a man named Enoch representing you and me who's walking through fellowship with God by faith like you and I should be. And right before God's judgment comes down and destroys the world, you know what God does? He comes down and takes him out. You know what God's going to do with you and me right before his judgment falls in a great tribulation period? Don't take us out. Don't take us out. Don't take us out. Oh, get ready, the evening shadows fall. Can't you hear Eliezer call? There's going to be a wedding. My joy will soon be full. In the evening when the camel train comes in. It's coming in. Coming in. Now this is why you need to know Romans chapter 8. This is why Romans chapter 8 will make more sense to you now understanding what I've given you today. You go home, come over to see me, whatever you got to do. Grasp the concept of the rapture. I'm going to put together with some of my boys out of institute, I'm going to put together a, a forum here down the road where you can come in and we're going to give you every piece of that puzzle you need. Get you ready for where you're at and then couple of years down the road or a year down the road when you're ready for institute, I'll come in and, and take, it's like, it'd be like taking a, what we're going to do right now is, uh, Mike, what we're going to do with these people right now is what you do. Mike builds race car engines. But they don't make race car blocks. They make engine blocks. I was over to the shop yesterday. You got to see his shop. He makes engines out front and AK-47s and, and, and guns out the back. It's great. I love it. He blew up I don't know how many things yesterday. I hope the neighbor wasn't mad we killed his chickens, but you know what, what are you going to do? You know what he does? He takes a block out of an engine, standard block, which you take out of your car. You go buy a car from Ford or a car from Chevy or whatever the case, because I guess nobody's buying cars anywhere now, but if you would go buy one, you take that engine out, that's what he starts with. He just gets a block. And you know what he does? I saw him when I walked in there yesterday. You know what he's doing? He had a camshaft, and I love this kind of talk. He had a camshaft on a lathe. And he had this big thing, and he's polishing, big old strap, polishing the, the things of that camshaft. When they put them together at Ford and Chevy at the factory plant, they just throw them in there. You know what the old saying is, you don't want to get a car put together on early Monday morning or last car put together on Friday afternoon. <laughs> they just put them in there. Pistons, crankshaft, and it runs really well. Runs really well. But, ah, oh, those engines won't work for you, will they? No. What, standard engine in a regular car, what, 200 horse, maybe 180 horse? You put 600 horses out of his. He drills out the cylinder walls, takes little pistons. I'm not sure what a little piston looks like, but a little, takes little <laughs> pistons and puts, drills them out and puts big pistons in them. Some of those pistons are domed. Some are flat. He takes the crankshaft and polishes it so there's nothing that that crankshaft just spins in there. And, and then he puts, then they take the exhaust off and they put headers on them and they put, they put all these things and they put, they bore it out and they put big carburetors on them with big jets of gas. Look like garden hoses. And I'll tell you what, they put that engine down in that car and that engine fires up, boy, and that guy will get out in front of that race and he'll hold that line and he'll just run that car and run that car, run that car, and it just, it goes. Why? Because he took something that was standard and ordinary and souped it up and hopped it up and did all the right thing, turned all the right buttons, did all the right balancing of the engine that put things out 600 horsepower versus 180 horsepower. That's what I want to do with you. They're all standard engines right now. You're all standard engines. You all come factory model crankshaft, factory model pistons, 
You all come with little, little heads on them. You all come with this. You all come with that. You all come with, you all, come with all the little things that are just standard as you get them at the factory. You know what I want to do? I want to take you apart. I want to bore you out, put big pistons in it. I want to get a camshaft all balanced out. I want to turn you from an engine of 128 horsepower, 200 horsepower, to a 600 horsepower screaming, flaming, demonic angel who will run down the runway faster than anything else in this world. You don't do it by going to the factory. You do it by getting into the shop. You get in there where the work gets really done. You get in there where it's real. I don't think you've got to clean your shop up. I like it. It's, when you, it's, like, it's, like, it's like that movie uh, uh, with Tom Cruise where, uh, with, uh, when Robert Duvall played the guy in there and he walks into his barn there and they're you know, building race cars. There it is, old barn, old rickety barn in there with stuff hanging on, no painted walls and everything. Boy, he's, he's saying that, baby, I'm going to give you a low oil pan that's going to give you 58 more horsepower. I'm going to trim you like a bullet that you're going to get five or six horsepower. He knows what he's talking about. I look at you, I look at you, I look at you, I look at you, and I look at you, and I want to say the same thing. I'm going to give you an oil pan that goes six inches deeper. I want to get you some headers on your ears. I want to get you this, I'm going to get you that. I'm going to take you and transfer you into this. I'm going to give you things. I'm going to shape you like a bullet, and I'm going to do what it needs to be, see? That's why, whether you know it or not, that's why Paul says we're in a race. Standard engines won't work. You got guys all over the country to come buy his engine. You know why? He knows what he's doing. Now, I can't fix an engine. My car stops. I'm ready to sell it. <laughs> Guy says to me one time, he says, well, you got a short circuit. And I says, well, how much is it going to cost to make it longer? <laughs> but I know this. And I know how to take you, fine-tune you, make you a running, screaming animal for the cause of Christ. And it starts... Just like he has to break an engine down piece by piece and work on every piece, it starts with breaking that book down piece by piece and fine-tuning, balancing every piece, then putting it back together. And you'll run your life out for Christ. That's where it starts, where we're at, what we're going to do. Now when we get into Romans 8 next week, you'll have a better understanding of how this thing works. All right, every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do. We love you. Thank you, Father, for all you've given us and all that you've done for us. And, uh, Lord, thank you for our church and for the men and women that are here that love you and want to learn your word. And, Lord, we just do love you so much and thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, help these people to see themselves today. Help them to grasp what we talked about today. And I know that was, some of it was weighty, but, Lord, they can get there. But they'll just let us take them and, and make them and mold them and break the Bible down and give them what they need. They'll just you know, get their focus and their attention back on the things of God and out of the things of this world and just become what God wants them to be. They'll, they'll have everything they need. Lord, we love you. Bless throughout this week. Bless New Year's Eve, Lord. I'm, I'm praying every day, almost every hour for that night. And Lord, help us to, to just always uh, be uh, there and get everything done that uh, we need to do to help these people build that relationship. Uh, bless all the events today. Bless the young marriage time at Jamie and Danny's and bless the... Uh, uh, Lord, uh, Bible study this week and take care of the ones that are sick and bring us all back next week that we can get into Romans 8. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. Dismissed. Go ahead and shine up back there.